We want you to become an honorary gosling. Join us. You'll get exclusive access to conversations and content that would otherwise get us banned from social media. Plus, you'll get free digital downloads of some of our books and selective writings. And check this out. You'll get to participate in our live monthly Discord chat and more if you join our exclusive Patreon following that we like to call The After Party. It only costs $5 a month, which is basically a cup of coffee, and it helps us make the show better. We love you guys and can't wait to see you there. Become an honorary Goslings at patreon.com forward slash the Goslings and sign up today. Your local writers group is crap. Stop burning off your free time in the presence of introverted do-nothings. Instead, join the Goslings writers group live stream and podcast, The Goslings. A digital gang for writers. Writers who actually write stuff. Who use typewriters. Writers who name their pit bulls Hemingway. Writers who write all the people who've ever offended them into their stories, then murder the shit out of them. The Goslings. We don't always act pretentious, but when we do, we wear fucking ascots. Welcome to The Goslings. Write like a man. He's a typewriter. Yes. Yes, baby. Welcome, we everyone. Nick. I'm Jonathan. I'm Nick. And we are the Goslings. And I will let Nick do the intro yes. on this one since we're so excited. I, I might pee pee at my pants a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it could happen. Not that it's happened before. No. Or has it? Not yet. I don't no, know. No. <laughs> let us begin with our toast. Yeah, let's do the toast. Lift up your libations if you have them. And Nick will start and we will all follow. Take up the broken sword of your father. And strike down the darkness. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. Pretty good. What is mm. it? Bullet? Bullet Frontier Rye Whiskey. Frontier Rye. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good mm-hmm. choice. Yeah. Yeah. And not too hard on the bank account still. No, it's not. Probably costs less than a gallon of gas at this point. It does per gallon. <laughs> yes, I can get a gallon of this for less than a gallon of gas right now. <laughs> uh, well, we have a very special, special treat mr gary wayne has returned i'm going to introduce him as uh someone who knows more about what is going on in the world what has gone on in the in the uh biblical past yes and how to interpret that for today probably than anyone i've ever met he's phenomenal he's written this book we'll talk more about that the genesis 6 conspiracy and i'm about to bring him on right now ladies and gentlemen the chronicler of the gods with a lower G, <laughs> the man of myth and legend, the Christian contrarian and esoteric librarian, <laughs> the keeper of the keys to the vault of all things the pastors are too afraid to talk about, the illuminator himself, ladies and gentlemen, Gary Wayne. Gary Wayne. What's up, Gary? Hello, sir. Hello. So happy to be with you with one hour less sleep. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. right on the so, cusp of the time change on the back end. Yeah. yeah. So hopefully I can make some sense today and not sound like a, a person who has to have X amount of hours of sleep every night, which I do. <laughs> yeah, me too. Well, you don't look like you're suffering in any way. You look like you've had the ample amount of coffee, the required amount. <laughs> and so uh, now you'll... You, I wouldn't have known if you hadn't said anything. Hail yes. and fresh. There was a definitely an extra large cup dosed down of coffee today. There's yeah, no doubt awesome. about that. I think I mentioned it in the email. I'm pretty sure I'm convinced that uh, that daylight savings time must be part of Nephilim culture because there's no way taking an hour of sleep away from us is of the Lord. <laughs> you know, it's part of that fallen angel technology. It's like Hegelian dialectic that you know, oh, you get an hour here, but we take an hour here. Uh-huh. Yeah. Problem, reaction, solution. It's kind of like we having them withhold from your taxes. Oh, we're going to give you more when, when you file. We'll give it back. Yeah, it's 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 kind of akin to the deal with the devil. Yeah. <laughs> For a short right. period of time, you're going to like it, but then it's going to be really ugly when I come back to fulfill <laughs> yeah. the contract here. So. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. For well, sure. Uh, well, Gary, you um, you have an awesome website. You have an amazing book, The Genesis Six Conspiracy. Um, you've been on a ton of podcasts, ton of live streams. We're always honored to have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, your book, The Genesis Six Conspiracy, is probably, at least as far as I've seen, the definitive compendium on. I would call it Christian esoterica, but how would you describe the Genesis 6 conspiracy for people? 
Well, it's certainly unlike any book you're going to find on the marketplace. And there's a lot of book out there about giants. Yeah. Uh, there isn't, I don't think, a book out there that connects all the sort of different aspects about what other people uh, in terms of civilizations and religions believe about them and how that sort of intersects with what's told in the Bible and how the polytheist religions and mythologies uh, view that and through their polytheist lens and bring that together so that you can understand what's going on in the Old Testament and then sort of link that into prophecy to a certain degree. So what, what, what I like to say is it tells sort of the most complete story, maybe not the deepest story, uh, because I have another book that's going to come out that's totally devoted to the Christian side, because what I learned throughout talking uh, on talk shows and taking questions and receiving social media and emails, and I spend three or four hours a day just answering the social media for people who have questions. So don't be afraid to get a hold of me if you got a question or are looking for a document. Uh, I will get back to you. It might take a little bit of time, but I will, but I will get back to you. But what I learned from that is, is they wanted to know how much more is in the Bible about giants that maybe I left out because I took out like 350 pages on the first book to, to get it down to a size to be uh, published? And how does that connect into prophecy more? And so that's what this book is going to be all about. And people, you know, people are absolutely uh, looking for more information. And there's so much more information about prehistory in the Bible than what most people think, and so much more about prophecy. And you would think they were very, very small components, except they're the largest components of the Bible, mm -hmm. um, because churches don't teach either. And no. so, yep. It's, yep. it's and if you don't have the context from what happened and where we're going, then it's really hard to understand the full message and prepare ourselves for not only the world that we live in, and if we are indeed in the fig tree generation, then what's coming? Yeah. Why do you think? Um, why do you think churches shy away from these topics? Well, the first thing is is that they're taught not to teach this in seminary schools, both in the Roman Catholic Church and in the Protestant seminaries as well. And there's a sort of this superficial, specious reason for doing it because it's too nebulous it's too obscure you don't want to be wrong you don't want to lose your credibility you don't want to talk about things that maybe isn't publicly acceptable seeing seemingly with giants or how do we understand prophecy properly understanding there's a lot of pitfalls in there so that's the superficial reason the real reason is is that the gnostics and the polytheists have infiltrated Christianity at all levels and particularly control the curriculum at the seminary schools and they're just not taught this subject and I get a lot of ministers who get a hold of me and say can I get some material on this because we're just not we weren't taught this in seminary schools and so I think that's what's really going on and it's sort of akin to critical race theory that's uh, currently you know happening in public schools mm -hmm. it's the same mm -hmm. MO it's what you know, once they get a hold of the curriculum they get control of what people believe mm. yeah 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 absolutely mm -hmm. um so the new book um it's going to focus more from a christian perspective is on the nephilim specifically or are you going to cover oh because you cover so oh, many topics in this yeah, yeah, we do it's uh and this is not going to be a small book either i'm on chapter Good. 57 right now uh, it's going to be 70 or 75 chapters it won't be quite as big so i can save a little bit on the shipping costs Good, but it's going to be packed with information because what I wanted to do was is to do a number of things that I think people are looking for. I wanted to understand the angelic order and how that interplays. So I'm going to cover off the hierarchy, the cool. different kinds of angels, how that mixes into Mount Hermon and the Council of Gods. And I'm going to explain how you sort of go from there to understand the world that we're in and then why they produce these giants and then explain sort of all the different names uh, and tribes so that they know where they fit, how they affected our history in terms of the biblical history from, you know, after the flood. 
uh, and where the peoples come from because there's so many names and I, I, I talk a little bit about it in the first book that there's a lot of names that don't show up in the table of nations. Well, I'm going to dive deeper into that. Cool. And we're going to arrive at a place where you understand why there's some confusion with the Canaanites because you have nine patriarchless Canaanite clans that I'm going to use through um, archaeology, the understanding of pa how patrial names were done for places and locations, the patronymic aspect of the names. I'm going to work that back to give you a plausible understanding as who the Rephaim patriarch for those nine tribes. Um, that produce the ones that are taller than the Israelites that's talked about in Numbers mm -hmm. 13, but not the Anakim, but a separate people, and as Deuteronomy 1 talks about. Then I'm going to sort of walk through the history of, of Israel in terms of how it how they interplayed with these people in terms of the wars. And I'm going to walk through each of the campaigns and we're going to enter connect all of these giant nations into it. And then we're going to take that right through to the Davidic Wars and the King Saul Wars, and even into Solomon with that patronymic dynasties of Horim in particular, as you get into the time of King Solomon, and show mm -hmm. that these were still Rephaim-led countries with royal dynasties that were still ruling the countries at Israel that was, um, that was, uh, you know, warring against. And all the way through that in the first part of the book as I do that, and then, and then talk about all the different names of giant nations that people hadn't thought of or connected them to be giant nations. Um, you got the obvious ones like the Emin and the Zamzuzim. I'm going to cover them too in more detail than I did in the first book, but I'm going to give you all the other names. And in, that, in those sections of the book, I'm going to connect that prehistory of that to how that fits into end time uh, prophecy. So when I get into end time prophecy in the last couple of sections of the book again, I'm going to roll that information forward so that you can understand the language of end time prophecy and how you can sort of connect who these bloodlines and descendants are uh, as it talks about these royal families in the end time and how we can sort of take that back. And the difficulty is, is that the New Testament was written in Greek as it was copied down as opposed to Hebrew. So, you know, words like gibberim don't automatically just show up as gibberim in, in Greek. So you get, how do you get back to those root words that the, you know, the Jewish people who were the disciples and the apostles at that time, yeah. right, would have understood those peoples and those bloodlines. And so I'm going to connect sort of all of that back. And it's uh it's a, a project that is really, really fun. I haven't already got down to a, a nutshell, uh, you know, elevator speech in terms of what it is. But it's, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be the Genesis six conspiracy part two: prehistory, prophecy, and Raphaim. Nice. Really that. That, yeah. Is that the title? Is that's, that's the title: Genesis six conspiracy part two. Yeah, that's how I want to brand it and do it off. You know, do it off the same website and. Cool. And I don't, what I didn't want to be is I didn't want to be redundant in this book. So there's some obvious things that you have to do to, to make the premise for what you're talking about that's yeah. in the old book. But I'm presenting like 90% all new information. Oh, man, that's fantastic. Oh, man. I cannot wait. Do you have kind of a timeline on when you think that might happen? Well, my problem is, is, is I just want to put too much in all the time. So, <laughs> do it. Um, do it. I wanted it, it out Gary. for January, so I'm already behind that. I'm still trying to target it to have it in the publisher's hands by the summer and have it out, you know, in the summer or, or certainly before Christmas. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna make sure it's under 75 chapters and 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 get it done because you can literally almost write forever on this stuff. So yeah, right. Yeah. But, you know, when you get into like, you know, like the War of Giants, I mean, that there's just so much material in that in Genesis 14 and people don't make those associations and how all of those peoples and those names, where they came from and what's that sort of connection into what happens in the, in, in the time of the Exodus. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, you know, I, I just, it's just so much fun that I just love doing, doing the research and... Uh -huh. It's going to have a pretty impressive bi bibliography again, but again, only enough of the outside stuff to do what I have to do in there. So most of it's going to be like using some really good 
sourcing for backup information and sourcing that comes out of like Ellicott's commentary um, mm. or Strong's Cyclopedia, which is the original. These are all 1800 um, encyclopedias on, on the Bible and using Strong's. Uh, I do a lot of uh, taking the word back to Greek and Hebrew and explaining the word to people so they get the full context of that word in English and why it's important to understand for understanding prophecy, for understanding polytheism, for understanding giants, fallen angels, and what's going on in, in terms of that sort of... Do you of, find uh, that uh, the older encyclopedias and concordances, you know, 100 years old or more, do you feel like uh, they they are meteor richer? Do you feel like the newer stuff has been maybe scrubbed clean of some possible definitions? Scrubbed clean and not as much meat on it. Um, and they all are using the same sources. They're just they just condensed it down. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, I mean, I love Unger's Bible Dictionary and Nelson's Bible Dictionary, and but they're all sourcing from, you know, Strong Cyclopedia. I mean, mm -hmm. they're just not putting it all in there. So you're going back to the source to get the full definition. Right. As best as best as I can, yes, because wow. I think it's important that people, because you know, the Bible would be a lot bigger if the English translators uh, either wanted or had the ability to translate the fuller context of the word, instead of trying to use one word, use more words to explain the full meaning, right? right. And you have to be careful too, because it's got to be, once you start doing that, then you have to be careful you're not running into contradictions in, in other passages. And in each Greek word and Hebrew word, they can have several meanings. So it has to make sense in the narrative and the sentence that it's in. And it also has to be consistent in terms of whatever else you're adding in there for the fuller explanation is consistent with what would be translated and written elsewhere in the Bible. So it's a, it would be a big project. But the difference is, is, is the Jewish people understood the Bible and or would have understood it being documented into Greek is they understand understood those words in the larger context. Mm -hmm. And it was just sort of understood that people understood that context. Yeah, nobody owned. And if, what's amazing about that is uh, you didn't have every Jewish family with their own, you know, copy sitting on a shelf at home, right. you know, in different translations. Oral they went tradition. to the synagogue yeah. and that's where the, the scrolls were brought out and read to people. Yeah. And so, they still I mean, had a more contextual, you know, tighter understanding of what yeah, was take, going on. Take one word, for example, like Rapha, which is used 25 times in the Old Testament for giants. And people don't realize it's listed that many times. I may not always uh, say Rapha or Raphaim. Most times in the King James, only twice do you get Raphaim, right? Which is the same word as giant that's used 25 times in the Old Testament. And so Rapha has a root word and two words that branch out of it. And the root word is, is 7495, which can mean, uh, you know, as a healer or as a doctor or as a physician. Um, and but coming and that, that's part of the meaning to the Raphaim as being sort of had this ability to sort of self heal because that's why you had to behead them to strike them quickly and make sure they, Ooh, they couldn't repair themselves. But oh, they also understood the word Rapha as meaning shade or uh, S-I-D-H-E, as it's understood in occultism, as a she, uh, or a spirit, or a demon mm. spirit, right? And, or it also was part of the word for, well, the other word was for giant and a tribe of giants, right? So they understood when you said Rafa, they were, they're thinking all of those sort of meanings that are, could be being used and understood in context. So they didn't have to do a whole bunch of more explanation. It just, it's resonated with them with, with those different meanings as being akin to each other. Yeah. Man. Um, so real quick for anybody who is, uh, there's something in there I really want to touch on. Yeah, sure, sure. But for anybody who is unsure of the, um, the informational depth that Gary Wayne goes through, uh, the Genesis six conspiracy is an 802 page book, 801 yep. book. And the last hundred and nine hundred and ten pages are there are eight pages of bibliography in here. Eight. Eight pages. That's insane. And then there's another roughly ninety-eight to a hundred pages of endnotes. It's basically yeah. the last 
you know, the last hundred pages of this book are just it's reference reference. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's how yeah. exhaustively research. That's why I love Gary so much because like Gary, you, you're like my kind of nerd. And <laughs> you, you get, you have the same enjoyment doing that stuff as yeah. I do like researching yeah. military, you know, ancient battles and mm -hmm. military stuff. And it's just like, man, that's what you're passionate about. And it comes through. And, you know, yeah. It's awesome. So, yeah. And so depending what the editors do on the end notes on this book, it's going to have, what a lot more information in the end notes so I, i'm going to make sure uh as best as possible um when i'm using a source i'm also if they're using ancient sources citing those sources specifically and the page number and yeah and and, and everything that sort of goes with it and if i'm citing um like the cyclopedia i'm giving maybe a condensed down or the uh, concordance in this case i'm going to be giving a condensed down um translation of the definition of the word because it gets very verbal and verbose and instead of just copying and sort of pasting it type of thing um, i'm just going to condense it down to the meanings and um and put that in there but you get the different meanings and you get the the number of the word and then you look you can look at the uh, place where it's put in the bible does which which meaning do i think fits that verse well that's the hard thing about editing whether you know in your case <clears throat> you you could take the full breadth approach where you take a word and you you know you spend two sentences contextualizing it but you know you want to be kind of as concise with your dispensation of information as possible and like i have that problem from a writer's perspective you know of typically less is more but the problem you run into instead of saying you know like just a, a fundamental pure writing thing he ran quickly you know you could say he sprinted you know mm -hmm. so it's that concept but yes. when you start condensing it unfortunately leaves more room to re or misinterpretation yes so mm -hmm. in a subject like this it, it man it must be tough like finding that balance it, it is and because there's so much it's it's a large book you want to be you know as um economic as many words as you're going to be using right because again right. that adds adds to the cost as well and you don't want to lose people in too much of the minutiae which is why there needs to be a sort of good in my opinion interplay uh, particularly with this next book uh, for christians the interplay between the end notes and the text that oh yeah and i think the uh i think the uh the reader will very quickly um learn that you're going to be wanting to have that end notes as your companion as you're mm -hmm. reading through and mm -hmm. so i would like to have we'll see what the what the publisher does with it but instead of putting the end notes at the end i would like to have it as footnotes on each sort of yes. page as it goes through so that mm -hmm. that information yeah. is there yeah it's more fluid that yep. way people can just reference well they're going to be more likely to check them and learn as opposed yeah. to going to the back of the book because you know with with endnotes i would yeah. guess i would assume that many very few people actually when they see the mark the indicator they very rarely go back and read the, yeah. read the actual yeah. foot in the back for yeah. the end notes. well and and it gets tiring right and at, at some point you just say you know what He's citing sources on everything. I'm not going to check everyone. <laughs> that's, that's what I did. Word <laughs> word keep reading. Yeah, that's what I did. It's like, you know what? Yeah. I'm just going to roll with it. Yeah. yeah. He probably, he knows more than I do, clearly. So, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, do you want to mention the Yeah, uh, real comments? quick, before our next, before our uh, uh, first question, a uh, couple comments in the chat. Uh, Brian Tucker says, hey, Gary. Uh, Heather Ann says, hi, Mr. Gary Wayne. So great to see you. And then uh, Brian also mentioned, this is interesting, Brian Tucker says, giants were turned into stone here at Giant City State Park uh, in Maconda, Illinois. I don't know if you've ever heard of that or looked at that at all. I've never heard of that. Um, well, I've not seen those, but in First Nation uh, history, um, and particularly prominent in Central America with the Kishamaya, uh, it has the... Uh, giants uh in in a couple different sort of versions one where they're created from the stones and then one mm -hmm. as they're getting rid of them they're uh, turned back into the stones so there's obviously some sort of connection there throughout north america with that sort of uh, understanding of what happened to 
the antediluvian giants, because this happens at the time of the flood, as opposed to the other and typically all red-haired red-haired giants that show up in First Nation, yeah. Central and South American mythology after the flood. That's typically associated with the uh, the White Snake Clan. Let's say as the Hopi would call it, who came from uh, an island, which is thought to be Atlantis, as as you sort of connect some of the dots on that. But there's this white snake clan of giants that show up after the flood that's sort of common throughout uh, North and South America. And they seem to be the aboriginal uh, peoples uh, right after the flood. Really? Okay, so... Uh, we're gonna like I'm gonna dovetail totally into something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, where it, it brings up Atlantis, so there's always the argument or the conversation: where is Atlantis? You yeah. know, or where was Atlantis? Um, you know, if if there is this diaspora of Atlanteans that happened after the cataclysm, uh, a is the cataclysm the flood? B is the uh, the Atlantis that we are often referring to just an antediluvian Nephilim culture society, and C. Where do you think if it was a continent, a singular continent? Do you have any opinion on where it might have been? Yeah, a lot of thought there for sure in, in the questions. Yeah. So, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> yeah. take whichever of those you want, whichever yeah. ones you're interested. Uh, well, you know, the first thing is, is yes, I, I do think I'll start at the end and maybe work my way back, is that it was a Nephilim culture. Uh, it okay. is a parallel story to Genesis 6, 1 through 4, which is the preamble to the flood. And so you have in the Atlantean account, and I really like to rely heavily on Plato and Critias and Timaeus um, yeah. in terms of the accounts, because according to that, you know, the details came off of... Uh, <clears throat> columns in Egypt that were written down by Solon. Um, and so you, you get a little bit more of the, the ancient historian's history and accounting of it. And, and the details just seem to be, you know, a little bit more relevant and consistent with what we know biblically about the antediluvian world and uh, consistent with other accounts kind of around the world. So you have Poseidon, who's an offspring god, um, and he is going to take a human female named Clymene. And in the ancient definition of demigod, that's the offspring of a god and a human female that would create a hero, a titan, an earthborn titan, and what we would understand as a Nephilim in, in, in the Bible. And he creates 10 of those kings. So they're 10 Nephilim kings with 10 royal bloodlines. And this is the new mm -hmm. Atlantis that Bacon is talking about yes. for the uh -huh. end time. And so in that accounting, you're getting not just a flood of the destruction of Atlantis, you're getting a conflagration of events. You're getting, uh, in some accounts, three asteroids from the Pleiades that are striking the ocean that would start the flood. But you're mm -hmm. also getting earthquakes and you're also getting uh, seemingly volcanoes, and you're getting more than just the rain in the, in, in the destruction. And we actually get a little bit more of that in the Bible as well. And I covered those details off in the, the Atlantis chapter in, 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 the, in the first book, the Genesis 6 conspiracy, in that you get uh, accounts that are talking about uh, a time when God's wrath is is sort of coming out, and it's the the, uh, the bottoms of the seas are laid bare. Right? I mean, what would cause that, and when would have that happened? The only way it sort of lines up is is with a larger sort of event, and you, you get these earthquakes that are going on, and. And so I, I list all of those out. I won't get too far into the minutiae of it. So biblically, we can say, hey, there's, yeah, there was a flood, but there's some other details that we, we may want to fully understand, just as the Bible talks about the Orion and the Pleiades and all of these other things that are talked about in uh, polytheism that they associate with the flood. In fact, so much so in the polytheist 
Babel accounts afterwards, they are going to do a temple at the bottom of the Babel Tower that are that they say were also were uh, helped built by the giants after the flood. But a, a temple that's devoted to the flood and to the three asteroids of the Pleiades or the three stars of the Pleiades mm. that crash into the ocean. And so it's very strong in, in polytheism. And then in that culture of mystical black magic that comes out of Atlantis, that's the Enochian mysticism at its apex, the Enoch son of Cain that develops the seven sciences, that develops the mystical religion that merges with the, the knowledge from the gods or the fallen angels as we understand it. And this is that religion that's going to cross the flood that's going to show up at Babel again, that Nimrod is going to be given that information, that knowledge and that religion, impose it on the Noahites and use that knowledge to build Babel City and Babel Tower. And we have accountings that come from this Atlantean uh, flood story, because I think it's the same story. I think it's just the polytheist lens from, from sort of a Greek accounting of it, ancient Greek, antediluvian Greece. And you have seven sages that are serpent-like Raphaim-type beings or Nephilim-type beings that are part of the survivors that go into uh, the, the lands of the world. Individuals like Quetzalcoatl or mm. Osiris, as they connect back into it, that re-educate the survivors after the flood. Because in the uh, polytheist version, giants and humans survive the flood. And in many places around the world, not just the Noah story. So they have have this accounting on all provinces. So you get these seven sages that show up in Egypt. You get them in the in the Popol Vuh. You get it in the seven sages of India. And it's all sort of part of that sort of how this knowledge crosses the flood from one aspect of it. And the other aspect is the secret societies that the bulk of the knowledge is found by Hermes hidden underneath the pyramids, right, in 36,525 books and nine vaults buried beneath beneath the Great Pyramid. And so I tend not to think that giants survived the flood, but polytheism leans more towards that, whether or not it's the giants escaping out of Tartarus into Scythia after the flood, as, as one specific account, or in stories that emulate the biblical ark story, like the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is all polytheism and giants. These are not humans that are surviving in the Epic of Gilgamesh. And Gilgamesh is created after the flood, even though like in the Book of Giants and other uh, antediluvian accounts that stray quite a bit from the Bible, there's also a Gilgamesh before the flood. But it's not uncommon for you to have a Hercules after the flood and a Heracles uh, be, uh, before the flood. So they would take the same name, just as the offspring gods rise up to take the place of the parent gods, uh, like Baal taking over for El and the Baalim gods after the flood, because I think the offspring gods went to the, uh, went to the abyss for their crimes. And so I, I think that when you have um, that sort of kind of understanding that polytheism looks at giant surviving the flood, as in the Epic of Gilgamesh, to bring this back around. Understand Gilgamesh is two-thirds God and one-third human. He's a demigod, right? Mm -hmm. And it's mm -hmm. interesting with that one-third and two-thirds sort of equation to it. Yeah. Yeah. So Pishtun in the Epic of Gilgamesh is said to be who Noah is based on, except that Pishtun is also two-thirds God, one-third human. His whole family is two-thirds God, one-third human. It's a giant survival story. So they have a second incursion in there with Gilgamesh and Enkidu being created after the flood, and they have uh, a survival on an ark. And even in the Greek mythology, you have Deucalion, who's called the Greek Noah and Pyrrha as his wife. And what's interesting about that, that's got nothing to do with humans either, because Deucalion's the son of Prometheus. And Prometheus is either going to be a Nephilim or more likely one of the offspring hmm. gods, right? Yeah. And so this has got yeah. nothing to do with being um, 
a human survival story. This is the polytheist lens on the royal bloodlines that they're, they're tracking through their, their literature. So I'm not convinced that you had the seven sages after the flood. That's their mythology. What I do believe is their knowledge crossed the flood. Their religion crosses the flood and it shows up again and we first see it at Babel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have a question actually about the Nephilim, the bloodlines. Uh, in Revelation 13, John sees the, when John's having his vision, he sees the beast rising and it has seven heads and ten horns. Do you think that the ten horns might correlate to the, ten Neph the bloodline of the ten Nephilim kings? Well, and, and that's kind of the case I'm kind of making in, in the first book, and then I'll get even more into that in, into the second book. So in nice. when you look at Revelation 13, uh, you see that same beast that shows up in Revelation 12 that's waiting for the child, right? The, the, the Messiah dragon. to be born. Exactly the same empire um, that is sponsored by the dragon. Um, and also understand this is like a Leviathan type of dragon. Multiple heads. Seven yeah. heads, right? Yeah. And uh, it's also the red dragon, which is also associated, as you get it out of Revelation 12, with Satan as well. So, And then you see that same beast that's being written in Revelation 17. Now, this is all an extended meanings of what happens in the book of Daniel. So that in Revelation 13, you get this beast and it has traits of the lion, it has traits of the leopard, and it has mm -hmm. traits of the bear, mm -hmm. which are separate beast empires that come before the terrible one, which is the fourth that's talked about in Daniel 7. That's the one that's of iron that will then separate into the two legs, which became, I think, the two halves of the Roman Empire, uh, Constantinople and Rome. And then you have the ten toes that are extended out of it. And I'm sort of flipped back to Daniel 2, which is telling a different allegory uh, of ten toes. But in Revelation, or in Daniel 7, it's talking about this empire that rises out of the old Roman Empire that also has ten horns on it. And those ten horns are, as they're talked about in, in Revelation 13, uh, not only ten horns, but ten kings. And it's, and it's also associated, and ten crowns. And, ten crowns yeah. the and seven crowns as well on the empires as you go Revelation 13, uh, 12, and 17, as you put all that sort of information together. And so this is a connected beast empire just as the statue is one beast one statue right mm -hmm. right yeah. so yep. and it all is it's all sort of fitting together in sort of the bloodlines right and so in daniel 2 you get this interesting passage in in daniel 2 42 to 43 as i recall on on the on the verse where you have the, this ten-toed empire which is the ten kings which is the ten uh, horns that they will mix with their seed with human seed in the end time. That's an absolutely bizarre yeah. sort of understanding. And that in Psalm 21, verses 19, 20, and 21, as I recall, it talks about the time of the wrath. And that at the time of the wrath, there's, there's going to be a reckoning to this fruit and to this seed that's on the earth and be removed from the, 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 from the children of men. So there's a separate race that's being talked about. And I think that's where these 10 kings come from in the end time is, is that they are descendants of the Raphaim after the flood. I'm open to the fact that there could be Nephilim that are in clone bodies or whatever that are gonna be part of those 10 kings. But what we do get that we can put our hands on for sure is that they, the royal families have genealogies that take them back to these beast empires, right? Yeah. Oh, and that, a, yeah. yeah. And so I think these are the descendants of the Raphaim that are going to make up this 10 king empire uh, uh, of the end time. So when I look at the seven heads, 
that's the seven beast empires. And those beast empires are the empires that are associated with Israel. So Egypt is the one where Israel is brought into a nation, and then you have the Exodus. Assyria is the one that takes the northern tribes into exile for breaking uh, the covenant. And then you have uh, Babylon, who's going to be the empire that takes the southern kingdom into exile. Then you have um, the Persians and the Medes who are going to permit the Jewish people to go back and to build the temple. And then you've got the period of Alexander and his empire who invade the land and there's a, an abomination-like happening that happens mm -hmm. there as well. And it's important to understand the other parallel prophecy of the uh, of the Greek Empire and then you have the Roman Empire that actually comes out of the uh, Greek Empire uh, as as the next one that is going to destroy the, the temple it's the time of the Messiah and the crucifixion and you have the exile of Judea into uh, the rest of the world only visible as opposed to the lost tribes of Israel so the end time Empire is going to be deeply connected to Israel and Judah as well, just as the Eighth Empire, which is Antichrist, will also be heavily influential on it. And it's interesting that Michael, he doesn't prevent the empires from coming about. He fights them. I think what he's fighting is preventing the Antichrist to come to power until he sits down, as he's described, sitting and then rising again at the midpoint of the last seven years in Daniel 12 and the time of the war in Revelation 12. So I think, I think when we look at how the beast empires are formed and who they are, we need to look at that relationship with Israel because it's all about Israel and who's grafted into the covenant, which are the Christians. And you also have Daniel 8, which also has additional meanings to help us understand end time prophecy um, and is also part of those seven heads. And it comes, and it's not a contradiction, it's, it's a parallel dual prophecy that just provides us more information about where the Antichrist is going to come from in the end time and what he does. And so you have the Greek Empire as it's defined and Alexander as who that would be that's being prophesied as that king. His empire is going to split up into four. So his empire is split into the four winds. So the four, and so you have five empires there. Then out of that empire comes Rome, which is the sixth empire, and then the rise of that empire again in the end-time empire. So again, you have the leopard that's represented in the body for Greece, and then you have still the other empires that are sort of represented from Daniel 7. So, so there's no contradiction there. But those are the seven empires. And in Revelation 17, I know I'm down on a, on a rant here, but uh, in da Daniel 17, you have the seven hills that are also entered yes. in and the seven kings, not either or. Yeah. It has seven, it represents seven hills. And this mm -hmm. is probably to do with Babylon and the woman, and it's the seven kings. And those seven kings are like seven antichrist-like figures, right? From those beast empires, just <clears throat> as antichrist is the eighth. So you can imagine certain ones in there and, Probably I would put the Pharaoh in at the time of the Exodus who wanted to destroy Israel from the face of the earth at the foot of the Red Sea, right? He yeah. went out there to absolutely destroy them. You know, you have the Assyrian king that did the exile. That would be that sort of antichrist. You have Nebuchadnezzar who almost completes the abomination at that time. He does the statue and he plunders into the temple, but he doesn't do it there. And yeah. you have Cyrus who's maybe not an antichrist-like figure, but he is one, you know, you have you have other kings in there, but Cyrus is the most influential who kind of starts the whole thing rolling for the temple. But you could, uh, you know, in the time of the Persian king of Ahamaris, or Ahuras, I mean, I hate those uh, Medes, um, <laughs> Persian kings, that just drive me crazy, but you have... It always defeats Haman, our uh, occasion tongue. You have you know. Haman the Agath, Agathite that's raised to being the head royal king of his vassal kings who's out to destroy the remnant of Judea. And he comes yeah. from the Amalekite bloodline, right? And then you have, uh, after that, you have 
you know, a true antichrist type figure in Alexander, right? I mean, he is, he's considered like the two-horned devil in, in the Quran. I mean, this is thought to be an antichrist type of figure. And you've got like Julius Caesar, what might be one, or the you could pick the Roman who the Roman Caesar that is around at the time of Jesus' crucifixion or the Roman Caesar at the time of uh, the death of Jesus, uh, or I guess I just said that, or the one at the time of the destruction of the temple and the diaspora of the Jewish people. So you have these antichrist type figures who don't come to full power. And I think that's who Michael is, is sort of fighting against. But they're also the seven kings of, of those seven antichrist type figures, right? And we need to sort of understand that. And there's another one that's in there that I think is kind of interesting. There's two other kings that are kind of antichrist-like figures in Ezekiel 32, which is Pharaoh, um, who is kind of like this, uh, described as this beast uh, from the waters, which is Hebrew Tanim, and is in, in Ezekiel 29, and it's actually translated as whale. Uh, or I mean, it's, it's whale in thirty in Ezekiel thirty-two, but it's dragon in Ezekiel twenty-nine, and it's the same mm, Hebrew right. word. And then you have Tyrus, that's also involved, who, who is like a antichrist type figure. So that's sort of all sort of inter interwedded into into there, particularly with the Tyrus one, because that becomes, I think, that economic beast empire that end time Babylon will be that is riding these seven empires of the world. And if you look at those beast empires, there's kind of three major components of it. You have like the, the king and the, and the army and the empire, right? You have their mystical religion, which you know comes from Babel after the flood, which Babylon is rooted in. And then you have the power of its free trade and its commerce that is controlled. And what's interesting about Tyrus is, is that in, in Isaiah 23, you get an accounting uh, of this destruction of Tyr that is described not only for the time of, uh, of the prophecy in the time of Isaiah, and of course the Assyrian romp and, and rise to a beast empire, but it's also destroyed in the Babylon one. But you also have this island and these people that are escaping to sort of around the earth that might be, you know, that a lot of polytheists would point to as the seven sages and that this is an allegory of Babylon, right. which is an allegory for uh, Atlantis before the flood and that destruction as an island before the flood. And so I think we need to understand those things kind of in context as to what's going on with that beast in Revelation 13 but that these 10 kings that come up, they come out of all of these beasts. Come, they come out of the extension of the metallic statue. And I think the bloodlines that are talked about in, in, Psalm, in, the, in the book of Psalms that I talked about and in, in, in Daniel 2 are referencing this bloodline that are going to be part of those uh, 10 kings that are going to rule the earth uh, once Babylon comes to power and brings about that 10 king groups of nations, spheres of influence, um, empires ruled by 10 kings at the at, in the end time. Yeah. Um, I know Nick probably wants to get to some of the cool comments we have in the chat, but I wanted to ask real quick, because it's kind of just a real short answer, I would assume. I would assume, <laughs> but you never know. <laughs> you never know with me. <laughs> uh, so the, uh, the 10 bloodlines, are they the ones that are all jockeying to have uh, yes. their bloodline be the one to usher in the Antichrist? Yes. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's why Jesus is warning us that there will be multiple Antichrists, as he talks right. about in, in Mark and, and Matthew. And um, also in the epistles of John, it's talked about um, multiple Antichrists. And yeah. Gog as you take that back to Greek and Hebrew, it's understood as an end time antichrist type figure. Yeah. That is probably fighting a counterfeit Armageddon battle that antichrist will come to power on for and take credit for winning. So yeah. Yeah. I think, I think we need to understand it in those sort of terms that what you will see not necessarily brought out at the geopolitical shuffling that's going to need to take place to bring about world government and how it mm -hmm. will go into the 10 groups of nations as 
without coincidence, the Club of Rome, which was formed in the late 60s, their agenda was to move the world into the direction of the 10 groups of empires that they split the world up into at that point in time. And so it's kind of akin to how this is going to come about to if I could look at, let's say, First Nation tribes, which have the bloodline chiefs. And then of late, you have the elected councils, and they're all sort of jockeying for position for power within those First Nations, right? And I think that's what is going on in the world today between the bloodlines of the Rafaim and the democracies that have come along. And there are there could be a mix of those kinds of kings in the end time. You could have some, you know, the, the ones who have more pure descendant bloodlines. Um, and then you yeah. could have maybe just kind of like some strongmen, right, um, yeah. that are going to be um, set up to 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 run those those groups of nations and that may be what's being talked about in you know the two legs that has the two feet on the ten toes on two separate feet that there could be that mix and it could be similar to what daniel 243 is talking about or you could see that split more as what we're starting to see from a china and russia world order that is going to have maybe five that are with them and there'll be five on the other side but there will be this sort of mm. tenuous working relationship that that is starting to rise that's but scary look, to think about mm-hmm. but look for the bloodlines to be ever more increasing as we get to the core of what's going on in the world today, whether or not it's in Russia or whether or not it's in China or it's in Japan, look for those genealogy. So a good example would be President Xi in China. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's spelled X-I. And it's yeah. a short form and sort of the Western version of Sha, which is X-I-A. And the Sha was the bloodline and the original tribe of the kings and the dynasties of China. So he comes from the Western bloodline as opposed to the Eastern bloodline of the original kings created by the dragon creators since the flood. And again, I have a document on on that for people if they want. And then you've got the original czars of, of, of the of the cossacks that Mm -hmm. uh, originally settled in the area you know sort of north and um east of the black sea you know that uh, you know eventually went into moscow and and set up their kingships there at a later time and Mm -hmm. those those some people call them tartarians and they're literally are connected back to the cossacks and the tartars and the tartarians comes from that those that that area that is under attack today as the capital city is the original home of the original bloodlines of the original czars and they oh, wow. were they were replaced in the 1600s with another royal bloodline but by the romanovs that people would be more familiar with but what's interesting wow. is is about this original bloodline that's in the capital of that country that we were talking about is mm-hmm. that there's the leader of the the Russian nation today whose grandfather descends out of Kiev. Oh, really? Yeah. And his name wow. comes out of nowhere in the <laughs> 1850s. It, it, there's really? no there's no Putin name before the 1850s. Oh no, kidding! So there was really? a ro- there was a royal bloodline of the original czars that were called the Putyanin, and in that tradition from there, that if they had children out of wedlock, they yeah. would not receive the whole name; they would give them a part name. Interesting. Now, <laughs> I love if, it. Oh, that's so funny. How do you and, find and, this? I've got a document on this as well if people want it. Um, and people, if they want these documents, by the way, because I don't think we've ever really mentioned this, they can go to your website, yep. genesisconspiracy.com, and there's a section on there where you can contact Gary Wayne directly and request via email any of these yeah. documents. And okay, the, okay. the Yama, Yamamoto bloodline in Japan yeah. descends out of the Shah or the Li dynasty out of China. Right. And so, but I would expect 
Japan to be a leader of another group of nations in the southeast as well. That would be, if it's going to be split five and five, that would be part of that eastern and the kings of the east as they come to be known in, in, in the end time battle um, to that uh, will we'll be forming. So you can imagine that there should be bloodlines then all around the world. So if we go yeah. back to the time of the exploration of the new world and in particular into you know Mexico and into South America you have all of these royal bloodlines that people think were lost to history well of course they weren't so what the Spanish did is they would kill the king at that time but not the rest of the family and by 1525 or so you have a complete reinstatement of all of the rights of that family and bloodline afterwards. And then they start to intermarry with the Portuguese and the Spanish. So both of them work hand in hand to reinstate mm. those bloodlines. They're yeah. vassal kings at this point, right? Vassal families, but they're going to intermarry with the bloodlines from Portugal and Spain. So. You have families, I won't go through an endless list of names, but you like have the Indoroca, which is uh, thought to be the modern bloodline of the Incas, right? So you're going to have the Aztec bloodlines and uh, the Matildas and many other families that come from Central America that have intermarried and are still sort of in that ruling class today that yeah. are going to sort of rise to control those those end time groups of nations and empires so i would i would look more in that sort of line and so you could imagine then uh out of china you've got you know the khans and the Sings as two sort of predominant family names or their other royal families but expect some sort of bloodline to rise to um an india dominated set of nations right uh, I'm not sure what happens in um, Iran with the uh, with Persia as they're known in the, in the Gog War. Um, that could be again that sort of intermix of strongmen and or bloodlines. Uh, so, anyways, look for all of that as sort of what might be in underneath the assembly of the ten uh, groups of nations that happens and what is going on with that shuffling today we're going to be seeing what's involved in the beginning of sorrows which will get stronger so you're going to have wars and rumors of wars right yep. that are going to be working with contrived pestilence you're going to be working with famine that is an outreach of wars and you're going to have the natural disasters which won't be there'll be contrived earthquakes that will also cause mm. pestilence and yes uh, uh -huh. famine and they'll be working together as this gets stronger even you know it's, yeah. and it's going to seem like armageddon is upon us but it won't be yet yeah even so much so that what happens in revelation 6 when there's only 25 percent destruction so we've had we'll have this destruction before and in, in the time of the sorrows and then we get this destruction in Revelation 6, that is 25% of the whole world in the population. Yeah, wow. Yeah, and it's the I, same, I, and it's the same catastrophes, and they hide in caves yeah. at the end of Revelation 6 because they think it's the day of the Lord, but there's 33% yeah. destruction coming in, and then the wrath bulls and yeah. Armageddon. So, just wait. So yeah, and Jesus is laying out all those events, wars and rumors of Matthew 24, wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, so forth. And uh, he said that if it wasn't for the elect, uh, God wouldn't have, wouldn't put a stop to it and there'd yeah. be no life left. Yeah, and we exactly. talk about a quarter and that's why he steps in. Yeah. Yeah. And what's Man. really interesting in Revelation 6 is you get wormwood. And there's so many different yeah. theories about right. there. But again, if we sort of understand what is being talked about in from a Jewish perspective with wormwood, that word comes up in the Old Testament. Really? And wormwood was like a poison like hemlock or a derivative of yeah. hemlock, a poison. So there's mm -hmm. this star that is a poison thing, if you understand that from oh, an right. Old Testament perspective. Uh -huh. And so you're talking about, is it like mass biological warfare? Yeah. Or is it something even more connected to what's going on mm -hmm. in, in a country that we've been talking about? And there was a, a nuclear issue back in the 80s there 
was Chernobyl. Yep. Mm -hmm. Right. And that could be mm -hmm. disease. Now, most people don't know this, that in the language, not Russian, but in, in the country that it's in, where Chernobyl is located, that means wormwood. No kidding. So that the could be like a foreshadow Ooh. or a birth pang of what this wormwood's going wow. to be. That in that war that's going to kill 25% of the people, is that, yeah. the, is that the disease of wormwood that we're going to get with the destruction of nuclear plants? You know, nuclear um, bombs? Thomas, Thomas Horn from uh, Skywatch uh, has a book about wormwood. Uh, his, uh, he has an alternative perspective on that. He, he, he's... Uh, he thinks it's going to be an asteroid named Apophis, which is supposed oh, yeah. to uh, come around near Earth uh, 2029, I think, something like that. It, yeah. It'll be at its closest point to Earth. It's projected to pass, hopefully pass, yeah. Friday the 13th nice. of April 2029, Apophis yeah. coming around. But he somehow uh, links uh, Apophis to, to Wormwood through the etymology of the two wood uh, two words which also could kill you know yeah. 20 25% or more of the yeah. population. well apophis would be more identified with the uh you know a parent god of the underworld in egyptian mythology right okay um, that's yeah. where that comes from but and I, I don't rule out the possibility of a planet or a large asteroid or something that's coming close but the trouble is with that is that it has to be done just perfectly. Otherwise, it's a complete extinction event that gets right. too close, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And we're only at 25%. So there, there needs to be a degree of accuracy in terms of how that's going to hit 25%. I mean, God would know if that's the case. The other thing is, is that's the same mythos that comes out of polytheism about Nibiru. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I haven't heard it's, of Nibiru. What's Nibiru, that? Well, that's planet, the th right? uh, 12th or 13th planet that, yeah. or whatever the number that they use for it, that Nibiru, will be coming back yeah. in. That's the home of the Anunnaki. Mm -hmm. Oh, uh, the okay. alien mythos, right? So, oh, yeah. uh, it's on some ancient. I can't remember <laughs> yeah. if it's it must be Mesopotamian, so, some ancient cart, uh, yeah. star chart or cartography. Yeah. Show. So I don't rule yeah. it out, um, but I'm. And, and I do think that polytheism has a different lens on some of the catastrophes that happens. But again, I also look for the catastrophes to be man-made or mm -hmm. done as opposed to natural. Yeah. And so, but again, because we don't know, there's a lot of still obscurity, you know, as, as best as we try and understand it, there's, till we actually get closer to the events, we may not fully understand it. So we need to be open to that. Uh, but I would lean towards the understanding of the writers of the prophecy who were Jewish with John and mm -hmm. and trying to communicate it in English the best way he could. Just as with Armageddon for the location, we need to understand it as his instructions are, as it's understood in Hebrew, that we get transliterated into Greece, that gets transliterated into yep. um, English, which is not... You know the plane of Megiddo, and it's probably more Mount Hermon. I'm going to cover that off from uh, connecting to some cool. research that's been done on that to Mount Zion, which yeah. is the other word for Mount Hermon, and it's the counterfeit mm -hmm. Zion that yes. is going to be established mm -hmm. in the end time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I am fascinated. Oh, gosh, I yeah. am I'm fascinated with uh, with bloodlines and. Uh, was curious i mean you mentioned a couple of potential bloodlines that we're watching every time we look at the news mm -hmm. we could be potentially seeing certain world leaders as a part of these these ancient bloodlines yeah uh any uh, do you ever suspect any uh of those bloodlines uh before us publicly here in north america i don't know do you have any yeah well i mean yes i do uh to zero in on what nick's talking about you know you talk about um uh, you know plagues you talk about famines you talk about you know when we're dealing with the end times and you know it seems like such a uh such a hard thing to imagine but i mean if you look at the medical ramifications from the recent you know past solution, two years you yeah. know yeah. The, the problem that that's yeah. been going around and yeah. then you look at the supply chain issues you know mm -hmm. and then you look at inflation from you know 
And then you look at uh, our response to what's happening overseas and the Keystone pipeline being shut off and just you can very easily. And then the thing that really gets me, though, is and and I say this as somebody who voted for him twice, you know, but I had noticed in the Christian conservative community how there was a borderline deification of Orange Man, yeah. you know, and and so you know you think like wow it must be really hard to but even the elect will be deceived and i don't know if he was part of the bloodlines or not we had a really good comment in there yeah 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 um, well from you know Jin- from from i mean i liked a lot of policies of president trump and yeah. Yeah. um i liked a lot of things that he did but he wasn't anti-world order he just wanted a larger role for the u.s right yeah Okay, and just as one. just as Putin yeah. isn't against the world order, he just wants a larger role than the Europeans want to give him. Yeah. Trump is the same way. Trump wants a larger role than what the European bloodlines want to permit, mm-hmm. uh, which is why they rose up against him, right? Yeah. Uh, whereas you've got the current president in there who's willing to make sure America is reduced to a level of power and status so that it won't have that larger role. President Xi just wants a larger role and he's going to be expanding his empire. So it's a matter of who's in control. So when we look at where does America fit in the end time, you can make two good arguments. One is going to lead one of those empires that would, you know, you could imagine Mexico and Canada through the, the trading block, but maybe that's not quite yet evolved. And maybe what I didn't really foresee coming, because I thought Europe would split into two groups. And I thought Germany would lead one. And I think that's definitely going to happen. And then I thought England and France would lead the other half. But I'm thinking now with the Brexit thing is, is no. that you have something else that's forming and you may see Canada, Britain and the US and possibly even Australia with that uh, alliance that uh, Biden negotiated coming in as being one of that group. And if that's the case and you're focusing on the bloodlines, don't look at the pseudo blue bloods, look at the bloodlines that would be heading that and that if uh, the US continues to lead from behind and, and and not be a leader in the world that you could easily see, not Prince Charles, but I think probably Prince William would be more likely if we're in the fig tree generation that will be the the next leader that might be leading that group. Uh, And so, but I'm open to both that it could be, whereas I always thought it would be, you know, maybe one of the pseudo bloodlines of North America that comes to the top, or there's an extended bloodline that comes out of the Europeans that will that will be running that, but still sort of reporting back to the bloodlines of, of Europe. Well, that's it for this episode, guys. We would love it if you tell your friends about the show, maybe leave us a good review, and also consider becoming an honorary Gosling. An official exclusive membership to The Gosling gets you exclusive access to interviews and conversations that we can't have on YouTube. Plus, you'll get free digital downloads of some of our books and excerpts and writing. Uh, Also, and check this out, you get to participate in a live monthly Discord chat with us. Uh, We do this once a month now. Um, All this plus more if you join our community on Patreon for just $5 a month. I mean, that's nothing. $5 a month, it's a cup of coffee. So go to patreon.com forward slash the goslings and sign up today. Thanks for listening. Now go forth and strike down the darkness.